6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 19 through 21. The other way to measure of which is God's greatest glory is what did it cost him? Well, the creation took six days to be breathed out of his nostrils. He called it into existence. I'm not knocking that. But I suspect he could do that again in another six days, should he feel like it. What did his redemption cost him? His son. And we can't imagine. We can't imagine. I think we'll be spending an eternity discovering what it cost him to allow us to be with him. When Paul preached to the Gentiles in the book of Acts, he began in Acts 14, he began with a creation, as he was speaking to the Greek minds. But then he went to the gospel. Well, let's go at this again. To the chief musician, the Psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is going out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. First four verses. The technology that I see here is not astronomy, nor is it necessarily limited to the heavens declaring through the zodiac. I can't help it, since my personal expertise is in the information sciences, what fascinates me that leaps out at me, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. These are information terms. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their, their words are to the end of the world. In there, twice in each phrase, there are information terms. The, the creation is screaming at us continually of what God would have us know. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night uttereth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. What is this saying? This is saying that no one has any excuse we're not recognizing God who he is. And it's interesting that the exact, that's exactly what Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 1. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Everybody says, well, what about the savage in the jungles? Well, if he doesn't get the message, it's our job to bring it to him then, huh? In Romans 10, 
Paul actually quotes Psalm 19 to make his point. In Romans 10, starting verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah said, Lord, who hath believed our report? He's quoting there from Isaiah 53. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. Does that sound familiar? That's a quote from Psalm, 14, uh, Psalm 19. It's interesting that Philip Brooks gave the first instructions about God to Helen Keller. Remember Helen Keller was the gal that was born deaf and blind, right? Philip Brooks gave the first instructions about God to her, and she replied that she had always known it was a God, but she didn't know what his name was. Staggering. Our task is to tell the world what his name is. His name is Jesus. There have been books written called Eternity in Their Hearts. It's astonishing when they go into ancient tribal areas, they discover people there already know all about Jesus. They may just have another label for it. Their line is gone throughout all the earth, verse 4, and their words to the end of the world, in them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun. The word line there in the Septuagint is translated sound. Their line, their sound, their influence is the way some translators handle that. His going forth is from the end of heaven. Oh, let's, let's take the whole thing. The line has gone through all the earth and the words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices as a strong man to run a race. You, you feel strength and joy in the, that expression. But speaking of the sun, it says his going forth is from the end of heaven, end of the heaven, and is circuit unto the ends of it. And I remember as a teenager reading critics that said, see how silly that is? Everybody knows the sun doesn't rise and set. That they, that they assume that this is Ptolemaic uh, cosmology, cosmology. Copernicus came along and proved to us the sun doesn't rise, the earth turns. See, this is out of date. This is what they call an anachronism. That's only because they, the critics, haven't done their homework it, the presumption that it's not talking about sunrise and sunset. It's talking about the, the path of the sun. And the path of the sun is from one end of heaven to the other. And uh, the circuit to the ends of it. The Milky Way, that is this the galaxy that we are in called the Milky Way, is a spiral galaxy of about 400 billion stars. That's a lot of stars. It has a central bulge, and then it's sort of an extended disk, and uh, it, uh, the diameter of the thing is about 100,000 light years. If you were traveling at the speed of light, it would take you 100,000 years to get from one end to the other of this galaxy. We are, the sun, is at about 28,000 light years from the center. It's, it has, it's, it's looking at the edge, it's flat with a, a bulge in the middle. And uh, you, they actually have been able to map this and figure out where we are, and we're 28,000 light years from the center. And the others are, anyway. His going forth is from the end of heaven, and a circuit unto the ends of it. And then it says, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. 
Something may, people may not realize is the, the, the source of all the energy in the solar system is from the sun. The entire solar system, in all the planets, all the energy on those planets comes from the sun. And certainly, all the, all the energy on the planet Earth comes from the sun. Well, what about gas and oil? Oil came from compressed leaves that came, that stored their energy over periods of time and under pressure from the sun. Let's just take an example of the leaves. We're in this season now where the leaves are starting to change. We're seeing the marvelous colors. There's a whole story behind those. I'll spare you right here. Get into our Genesis commentary if you want the details. But if you, if you take a leaf and study it, you'll discover it is incredibly complex incredibly skillfully designed with a, an elegant processing system that's too complex for us to do anything but summarize here. But the plants basically uh, give off oxygen and mix, it mixes uh, carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen into sugar, glucose, which of course the animals need. The oxygen they need, and they need the glucose or derivative of it. The animals, of course, burn that up doing whatever they do, and they breathe out CO2. The plants cannot make glucose or oxygen without the CO2. So the plants need the CO2 just as badly as the animals need the oxygen to breathe. So we have a system that is incredibly elegant and obviously skillfully designed. Now, while this did this all happen, couldn't possibly have because you can't have a system of subsystems, if the system's dependent on the subsystems, the subsystems all have to be their operative for the system to survive. You can't have one without the other. You follow me? And that's, a, that's the irreducible complexity argument of Michael Behe and others. Photosynthesis simply means to build with light. The, the, the plants are sugar factories producing millions of new glucose molecules per second. Most plants produce more glucose than they can use in store. And so they store it as starch and carbohydrates and root stems and leaves, which of course are eaten by various creatures. Each year, the photosynthesizing organisms produce 170 billion metric tons of extra carbohydrates and about 30 metric tons for every person on the planet Earth. Every one of us depends directly on that photosynthesis, which comes from the sun. All, nothing is hid from the heat thereof. But there's something more in the psalm than just this tour de force of the creation and his redemption. See, following the fall of man, creation has been subjected to futility and bondage as a result of the curse. That's described in Genesis 3 and elaborated on in Romans 8. To reveal himself even more clearly than from a fallen creation, a cursed creation, he has given us his word. So in addition to all of this, God has given us his word, and he's done it through a nation Israel to all the world. His word is pure. That's what the Psalm 19 points out. We need to dwell on that for a minute. The word of God is pure. It's perfect. It's pure. What does that mean? That means you don't mess around with a paraphrase. You don't mess around with an inadequate translation. 
you find the most adequate translation you can. No translation is perfect. That's okay. Because the problems are typically well footnoted. But you want to have a profound respect for the word as it was given by God. Well, I don't speak Hebrew or Greek. I understand. That's what a translation is there to help you make that bridge. But there's two theories of translation. One is called verbal equivalency and the other is called dynamic equivalency. The trend in modern scholarship has been to give deference to what they call uh, dynamic equivalency, taking the ancient expression and trying to turn it into today's, into today's language. That sounds noble. and Put it in the common tongue. Great. Except that's giving deference to today's modern language. Verbal equivalency does it the other way around, gives deference to what was actually said. And that is, that's one of the reasons so many scholars cling so tightly to the King James. Not that it's perfect, because it's got problems too, but they're well documented. But at least the attempt was made to maintain the precision and the majesty of the original and, uh, uh, and not yield to the vernacular of the day, of today. But uh, check that out. It's a you know, how, how does God feel about his name? Pretty jealous of his name, right? There's lots of scripture on that. It's a shock to discover that God puts his word even above his name. Psalm 138 verse 2 highlights that. So let's continue now. The, uh, Psalm 19 is going to shift gears here and go into the law of the Lord. We've been talking about stars and universes. No, the law of the Lord is perfect, complete. The Torah of the Lord. Torah means instruction teaching. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. See, it's, it's what, what it's saying, the law of the Lord is perfect. It is flawless. It is complete. It never needs revision. God said this thousands of years ago, and it's still true. How many of you would take a course in physics using 1950 textbooks? How many of you would take a course in physics using 1999? In other words, science is constantly obsoleting itself, correcting itself, finding where it wasn't quite right before. The law of the Lord has never changed, and yet all these ideas are in His Word too. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise and simple. Judgment is coming. The commandments reveal that. Moving on to verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Romans chapter 7, Paul says, Wherefore the law is holy, the commandment holy, just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. And we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. The fact that the law reveals us as sinners does, is not a fault of the law. That's what it was intended to do. It wasn't intended that we could keep it perfect. It was intended to, re, to reveal to us our inability to meet the law. And that's what we call law school. Romans 7 develops that from end to end. So the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The statutes of the Lord, and here we're talking the, the, the uh, daily instructions for everyday life. 
The statute of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It's interesting, the Ten Commandments are the root statutes, and that's uh, nine of the ten are, are quoted in the New Testament. The fourth one was, was the only one not explicitly uh, recounted. And, of course, the applications there are detailed in the epistles, particularly Ephesians chapter 4 and elsewhere. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Commandment means that which is appointed, warnings of life and death and so forth. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The judgments are coming. God's judgments are coming. The statue of the Lord are right, rejoicing the uh, heart. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. To teach fear is to teach the Bible, according to Psalm 34, which you will come to later, and uh, Deuteronomy 4 and elsewhere. The fear of the Lord sounds like a change in subject. No, to teach the fear is to teach the Bible is to teach the fear of the Lord. And judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, judgments are ordinances, verdicts, decisions of the judge. We need to understand God's righteousness because that will illuminate for us our need for his grace. That's basically the whole story. To know the warning and not heed it is sin, according to James 4.17. Now, going on with God's word here, more to be desired are they, God's commandments and so forth, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in the keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Do we desire God's word above everything else? Do we, do we, do we really, really favor time spent in his words over other things? If not, how else can we rise above our fallen nature? Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. What are those? Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. The word the is not in there, by the way, in the Hebrew. Innocent from great discretion, uh, transgression. What is the great transgression? The great transgression is the rejection of the remedy that God has provided for our uh, uh, shortcomings. That, that, that remedy is Jesus Christ. Knowing the creation, his word, all that, it's not enough. We must have a relationship with him. See, sinners were guilty even though they were ignorant of what they had done. Leviticus 5 points that out in the Torah. 5.17. The Old Testament made provision for sins of ignorance. Leviticus 4 deals with that. Numbers 15, 22 to 29. However, there was no atonement for presumptuous sins. That's scary. Presumptuous sins. 
Psalm it says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. See, the words of our mouth reveals our heart. That's why in, a, in, in some contexts, the words of our mouth can be our sacrifice before the altar. Because they, if they're revealing the meditation of our heart. And the word redeemer there is the word you would think it would be. It's the goel. One of the studies you want to take is what is a goel? You find that out in the book of Ruth. Also Leviticus 25, 25 and Numbers 35. And Isaiah 43. The goel, the kinsman redeemer. In Revelation chapter 5, when I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book sealed within and on the backside and sealed with seven seals. That who is worthy to open the seals and to, loose the, to take the book and to loose the seals thereof? No man was found worthy in heaven or on earth or under the earth to open the seals and to look thereon. And John says, I sobbed convulsively until the elders said, wait, wait, wait. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he hath prevailed. And John looks and he sees the lamb, Jesus Christ. He is our kinsman redeemer. He had to be our kinsman. He had to be a man. He had to be, that's why he came to earth incarnate. He had to be our kinsman. He had to be able to perform. He had to be willing to perform. And he also had to assume all the obligations of the one that he was redeeming. And he has done that. It's completed. But the kinsman redeemer was also the avenger of blood. And he comes in his second coming as that avenger. Okay, we can still squeeze in a couple more so we don't spend our entire session on this one. Let's go to Psalm 20. To the chief musician, a psalm of David, the Lord hear thee in the day of trouble, the name of, God, in the name of the God of Jacob defend thee, send thee help from the sanctuary and strengthen thee out of Zion, remember all thy offerings and accept thy burnt sacrifice, Selah. Psalm 20 appears to be a psalm, a prayer before a battle. Psalm 21 appears to be a praise after the victory. And they're both Psalms of David. And uh, the first five verses here, the people pray for their king. And uh, in De Deuteronomy 20, first four verses, it required the officers and the soldiers to first dedicate themselves to the Lord before a battle. And that's what they're doing here. The Lord hear thee in the day of trouble, the name of the God of Jacob defend thee. That's a strange term for David to use perhaps, but God was never ashamed to be called the God of Jacob. And uh, remember all thy offerings and accept thy burnt sacrifice, Selah. Accept thy sacrifice. Not my sacrifice, thy sacrifice. Uh-oh, what's that about? Is it possible that this psalm is also in its own way messianic? We'll take a look at that. that is gonna, that's going to raise a whole other issue for us here. We'll come to that in a little bit. Grant thee according to thine own heart and fulfill all thy counsel. See, David did more than just worship. He also sought the Lord's will concerning his strategy for the battle. And uh, he does that in 1 Samuel 23 and elsewhere. Grant thee according to thine own heart and fulfill all thy counsel. We will rejoice in thy salvation 
And uh, in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions. Now know I that the Lord saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Now, as we read this psalm, we're going to suddenly get a feeling that there's maybe three levels here. It's a psalm that you could use going into battle. It's a psalm that relates to David going into his battle. But the ultimate son of David, of course, is none other than the Messiah himself. And as you reread this psalm, you'll get the feeling that all three are operative here. It was a real psalm David used before a battle. It's applicable to Israel going to any battle. But it also puts the son of David in those shoes when you need to see it that way. We will rejoice in thy salvation. In the name of our God, we will set up our banners. The Lord fulfill all thy petitions. Remember in John 11, Jesus says, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. I knew that thou hearest me always. And Christ is probably the only one that the Father always answers and hears and answers. Now know that I, the Lord, saveth his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. That certainly applied to David in, a, in one context. It certainly applies to Jesus Christ in a much broader one. The king was the focus in this psalm. The king was the life and breath of the nation. The king was the lamp of Israel, 2 Samuel 21. The king was the special target of the enemy for obvious reasons. God's covenant with David assured him of victory over his enemies in 2 Samuel 7, verse 11. But in a broader sense, his covenant with Christ is far more, is, is far more reaching. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. See, if God can be for us, who can be against us? The way Paul phrases that in Romans 8. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music